Amen. Father Nicholas. Father John's cube. Uh, <laughs> Deacon Gary. The other brother deacons here present. My sisters in Christ. Christ. Now the the epistle and the gospel today, and believe it or not, the lectionary is put together with a logic where the the fathers saw a connection always between the epistle reading and the gospel reading. But both are very strikingly about one of the most core teachings, maybe maybe the core teaching of what we believe salvation is in the Orthodox Church, this word we call theosis. Sometimes divinization or deification. The one talks about us being God's fellow workers. We together, when we do work, it's God working. When we work through faith, is one of the images. But so is Peter walking on the water. Because we we believe that while Christ is the Son of God, by eternally. Our destiny, our salvation, is to be adopted sons of God. Now, for anyone with a more kind of feminist ethos, is like, hey, why, why sons of God? Actually, that was a very inclusive and empowering. Because only a son had full inheritance of their father in that culture. So when Paul is insistent that you become that women and men become sons of God. It's saying all of humanity now has this full sharing in God's plan and for theosis. So Peter's walking on the water. Why? Because Jesus can walk on the water. That's theosis. That's becoming an adopted son of God. Peter is doing it. So what I really want to get to today is what, you know, granted there are tons of obstacles in our lives that prevent us from progressing along the path to theosis. But one of the most important or significant ones, one of the biggest overarching hindrances that, that touches us in every aspect of life is the same one that stops Peter. Because he's doing it. He's walking on the water. He's walking on the water. And then what happens? He very, let's, let's be fair to the guy. <laughs> he very reasonably becomes afraid. He becomes terrified. Okay. Now, let's just step back. If he's just walking on a pool... Walking on a nice little calm thing. That's already scary, right? But he says there's a crazy storm going on. And he's walking on the waves. It is entirely reasonable, rational, etc., that he be afraid in that moment. But it is the fear, the fear that immediately causes him to sink. Now part of the and the graciousness and the comfort of the gospel is that Christ doesn't go, hmm, nice try. <laughs> Andrew, you want to try it? <laughs> 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 no.
Now, no, he, he saves Peter. He saves Peter from drowning. But he rebukes him, too. He also said, look, you had it. You had it. And then he became afraid. And why was he able to walk on the water? I mean, in, in some of the account, right, he, he, um, or later in the Gospels, actually, when he sees the resurrected, I mean, he leaps into the sea, right? By this point, he doesn't have that fear the same. <laughs> but, but why does the fear inhibit him? Because also, he, or why is he able to walk on water? Because of his love of Christ. And that's the, other ask, that's the other key thing in theosis. If there's one, one, one thing that theosis means more than anything else, it's that we become absolute vessels of God's love for other people. What's the opposite of love? We often think of it as hate. But hate is not really the opposite of love. Hate is more of a distortion of love. You actually still care about the things you hate. <laughs> Apathy is more like, but fear, that's an actual opposite of love. And it's a biblical so concept that's the opposite of love. Why? Because the first concept, perfect love casts out fear. Fear and love are on these opposing sides of this. And what keeps us from being able, one of the main things that keeps us, and I very much include myself, please understand this, okay? <laughs> Maybe more than anybody. The number one thing that keeps us from actualizing this, from bringing this into being, is that we fear. First and foremost, death. We fear death. We fear death. And again, to be fair, just like with Peter, that's completely natural. It's in us. We have a survival instinct. We have a survival instinct for a reason. Okay. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have that survival But it's also true that in many ways, the fear, fearing death or is one of the silliest things for us to fear. For two reasons. One is, despite what our culture does in trying to bury this reality, it's coming. It's coming one way or another. Father John Ryman always likes to remind me to add on, unless, it, it, as long as the Lord tarries, it's coming. So I'll add that caveat on. But it's coming one way or another. <laughs> unless the Lord comes back. So if you know it's coming, have a choice. You can try and pretend it's not coming. You can try and escape it at all costs, which is a futile thing to do. For those of you that are still in school, for those of you that can think back to school, what I often think of how we approach death is this notion that it's like that uh, really big term paper or project we didn't want to have to do. You find out about it at the beginning of the semester, and you're like, well, you know, that's months away. <laughs> it's months away. I don't, I don't need to think about that right now. 
And eventually it's two months away. Uh, well, you know, I still got time. I don't really need to think about it. And then one day it's like, oh my gosh, it's here. The reality is it's the same thing, except for a diff we don't know the due date. We don't know the due date. And I know this is, right now you, some of you are understandably feeling, wow, this is kind of a morbid sermon. Why do you think it's a morbid sermon? You think it's a morbid sermon because our culture teaches us to not, we have a whole industry to teach us that. Don't die in your home with your loved ones anymore. Don't get shipped off to a hospital. Even your property value of your house might be affected if someone dies in it. Go die in the hospital, then get sent to a professional like mortician that embalms does completely the opposite of what our tradition tells you to do with the dead. And then get buried in some big money corporate cemetery that is off somewhere that you don't have to see it. You used to be buried in the church or on the church grounds. You know that part in the liturgy where Father says, who here and in all the world lie asleep in the Lord? That wasn't a metaphor. It is now. But it used to be. You meant <laughs> right here. And when you came to church, there was grandma. There was <laughs> They were there praying with you, and it was a reminder that death is a part of life and is there for all of us. So as I said, it's already, it's already silly to fear it because there's no way to get out of it. But also, are we not orthodox? Do we not sing at Pascha? <laughs> that he's trampled down death by death? That he's transformed the idea of death into something that is, trans that is actually life just moving on to another stage. But still we fear it. And we fear it not just in the physical sense, but we fear it in, like the, in metaphorical senses too. Death of our hopes, of our dreams, of what we thought our careers were going to be, of how we thought our lives should work out, how we thought our children life should work out, of how we thought, like, what it, a growing church meant, or what it doesn't mean, or all these, I mean, the list is endless of things that make us fearful, that we want to cling on to. But the reality is, death robs us of becoming, I mean, the fear of death robs us of becoming like God. Causes us to sink when we can walk on water. As Shakespeare once wrote, a coward dies a thousand times before their death. The courageous person dies once. Well, what do you mean by that? He meant that because of our fears of like social pressures and of our dreams and aspirations and the sort of things that we think we want out of life, we compromise. We chip a little bit of, of ourselves away again and again and again and again and again. This is why so many people have midlife crises, by the way, right? You like sell yourself away. <laughs> so one day you wake up at 40, 45, and you're like, what did I, I've spent at? What am I doing with
die again and again and again until we're like a little, that, that, that person that we once were full of passion for God, like is barely there. What I want to emphasize is if the people that have transformed the world some of the most powerful ways are those people that have conquered that fear of death and thus have been able to walk on water. St. Paul, the first great missionary, arguably the first missionary, got his faith off the ground in the sense of spreading it throughout the empire because he was afraid of death. Read Acts. This guy looked it in the face every day. Jumping forward to the 20th century, someone like Maria Skopsova, St. Maria of Paris. Why is she a saint? Because she was willing to hide little Jewish children from the Gestapo in occupied France smuggle them out, and it cost her life? Or did it? Yeah, she died. Yeah, they put her to death in Ravenbrook concentration camp. But she lives. And all those kids she saved, oh, she was a powerful, courageous amazing woman that I can only hope to be. You know what she would do when the Nazis would knock on the door and ask her if she had any Jews in the house? She'd go get her icon of Christ. She'd go get her icon of the Theotokos, bring it to the door and be like, yeah. <laughs> that is a person walking on water. That is a person who doesn't fear death. A non-Orthodox but Christian example would be someone like Martin Luther King, who had death threats, death threats, death threats his entire life, who this last speech pretty much shows that he knows that he's about to die pretty soon. Quoting Moses, saying, like, I'm, I'm probably not going to get there with you. But he never sold out, even though he was given, told, told, told by police authority, tone it down, tone it down if you want to live. He didn't tone it down. The last thing I wanted to talk about that's still connected to all of this is that we have to accept the death of, yeah, as I said, dreams, death of ideas of what we think a career is going to be. Because those things keep us compromising ourselves too, right? Most of us are not going to find ourselves in St. Paul or Mother Maria's situation. But we do find ourselves daily in situations where we're faced with, do I do what I know what is to be right, even though it's risky, even though it's scary? Or do I just do what is conventional and will... Uh, cause things to work out well for me. 
deep. The reality is our culture operates off of this fear to keep us in line. I know this is going to sound amazingly conspiratorial to some of you. Let me just see. How many, how many people in here have ever heard of a man named Edward Bernays? I knew there would be at least a, one or two. But Edward Bernays has been called the most influential man of the 20th century you've never heard of. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew. And he used Sigmund Freud's psychology intentionally. You can read his works. He like lays it all out exactly. Intentionally to manipulate the masses as a form of social control. And his argument was we need a new form of social control because religion has now deteriorated. God is no longer the thing that we need another way to hold people together and, and is what he realized. One of Freud's most key insights is that human beings don't really experience pleasure as a just constant. Like we, don't, we don't just stay happy, right? Father, when the Giants win a World Series, that first day is joyous, yes? But eventually, you know, you think about it, you're still kind of happy, but no, but, nah, I'll get you, I'll get you right here. They have to win again, don't they? Right. They can't just win once. <laughs> they got to win again. And the other thing Freud saw is there has to be the possibility of you not getting it, right? Like if you knew your favorite team is going to win every single time, it would not be interesting anymore. In other words, Human pleasure actually comes from like not having something and then getting it. And then not having it and then getting it. And then not having it and then getting it. And then not having And so when people are chasing after pleasure, if you can keep them intent, you can manipulate that idea into something where just keep them always chasing the next thing. So Bernays, in his first um, big thing was after World War I when we had started mass production. They were like, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Because you know what we used to do? We used to build things to last. Because we needed the thing. It was consciously decided to stop doing that. It was consciously decided. One of the things Bernays came up with was the concept of planned obsolescence. The concept of making devices and products that have a limited shelf life. Why? So then you got to buy another one. And it places in you a sense of inadequacy and a sense of fear of not being like, you got to have a new one. My car looks old. People can see. This is why they change the models and the shapes of things. And I'm not armchair like things. Like I've done the research into all they change. Why does the iPhone change every time? The shape. So people can see you have the old one. And you can start to feel conspicuous with the old one. You need the new one. 
the old one's still working fine, except for when they like start screwing with the software to help the planned obsolescence go along. Okay. <laughs> hey, Allie. <laughs> If you start realizing, like he, by the way, he advised every president from Woodrow Wilson to Bill Clinton. Think about that span. <laughs> I can't go into all the different things he did. But master mind manipulator. He's the guy that came up with like adding an egg to uh, Betty Crocker stuff. Why? Because women felt like they weren't doing anything. So he's like, oh, okay. If they just made a mix, like we weren't really producing something. He's like, ah, add an egg. Now it's a home cooked meal. Skyrocketed. I mean, he really took his uncle's theories and put them to all sorts of use of social control. He wrote a book called Propaganda. Let's weave this into everything: the education system, our museums, or whatever, like our corporate, etc. Okay. He invented public relations. What's public relations? It's a way for people to tell you that the bad things that they're doing are actually not so bad or good. <laughs> and that was his concept of, of, how, of how it worked. He invented the focus group. It's about like being in people's head and making you want and need things you don't need. Because he also found, figured that his, his uncle's theory showed that human wants are actually more powerful than our needs. We'll go with what we want over what we need every single time, unless we're being more conscious, which most of us are not. Myself included, you know. There's times when I am, and there's times when you know I'll be in the middle of something. I'm like, I just bought into it again. Somehow I bought into it again. One time I drove my old 1998 Honda Civic. Yes, I still drive a 98 Honda Civic. Okay, I drove it, and I pulled in at work next to this shiny new BMW, and I had this real sense of self-loathing. <laughs> and then I was like, well, why? This has been put in me by the culture to say my value is attached to this sort of thing. And it's everywhere. Social media has, is, is constructed around the same sorts of things. People feel like they can't even detach. If I'm not on social media, I don't exist. If I didn't get a thousand likes on my bikini photo, I'm not valuable. And it's funny, but it's also tragically sad. Is it keeps people locked into these things. And so then everyone acts, our, our whole lives become built around a fear of not fitting into all of these things that we're told to be constantly consuming so that we can keep a sense of value and purpose. So that we make choices that go for the acquiring of more or more of so all sorts of various things that we find value in over many, many, many things we are called to do in the name of Christ. Now, I'm going to close with a few lines from a, a Wendell Berry poem. know Wendell Berry great if you don't. Yeah, maybe you should look him up. He's, he's a really profound kind of guy. 
says, love the quick profit. Love the annual raise and your vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. So he starts off with these things. Love all that stuff that Bernays helped come up with. And They're afraid of their neighbors. The community that small towns used to be has been all but destroyed over the last couple hundred years. Okay. The community that large cities are has been all but destroyed because large cities often have real, you know, small micro communities within them. These things have all been all but destroyed. So, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. Love the quick profit, all that. And this is what Wendell Berry says: and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they'll call you. When they want you to die for their profit, they'll let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government, but embrace the flag and hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. And then the poem goes on, but ends with a very blunt two-word sentence. Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. Practicing resurrection, walking on water, becoming God, all these different ways we can talk about saying they can only be done if we work on and meditate on the fact, one, that we're going to die, and the one thing we have some control over is how we go out. We go out kicking and screaming, trying to preserve some nice little comfortable thing. We go out serving God. I'm not telling everyone what to do on this sort of stuff, but like I, I hit this moment one time where I realized how often I just drive past people broken down on the side of the road. Why? Because I'm afraid of what they might do. Maybe they're maybe they're really gonna rob me or something. And would I would that not make me a martyr? Would that not make me what our martyrs did? Someone who, but we're not, we don't think that way most of the time. And it takes prayer and meditation on these things. That's why the fathers say, one of the consistent things they say to, is that the meditation on death is one of the most important things to actually living in the kingdom of God. Not again to be morbid, but because it frees you it frees you from all of the nonsense that you've been told that is important and that instills fear in you if you don't have it. May God give us all the grace to conquer our, our fears, to walk in his footsteps, 
even when it's over scary, stormy water.